Hi friends, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And the project is to work through the whole Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. I wonder when you were young, did you ever go somewhere where your parents said you shouldn't go or do something that they didn't want you to do? I certainly did. Or were you the one who was doing something and did not want your younger sibling to tag along with you? As a younger sibling myself, with an older brother, it was a common experience for me to be on the other end of this perspective. In a way, it was my first example of experiencing opposition from within my family. But as we get older, it can get more serious for us. Maybe some of the ladies out there can remember when they wanted to pierce their ears before their parents wanted. Or maybe some of you guys wanted to get tattoos or something like that and your parents were strongly opposed to it. But what about opposition when someone becomes a believer in Christ? If you're a member of a family that doesn't believe in Jesus Christ, that can become a real problem. What do you do when that happens, when opposition comes from within your own family? What happens when those who are closest to you begin, in a sense, to turn against you because you're a believer? Well, I want to tell you a story today of that kind of thing because it happened to none less than Jesus Christ himself. And when it happened to him, he had something to say that was very powerful and potent to say about this. And it doesn't just apply to those who have received opposition from their family. There's a lesson here for all of us as far as I'm concerned about opposition we might face in life in general. And it is in fact one of the most important lessons in scripture, I believe. So with that in mind, we're going to drop in together in Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 to 50, and look at what happens when we face opposition within the family. And friends, please do hang on at the end, and I'll update you with ways in which you can connect to this ministry if you're here for the very first time. Bye for now. So what I'd like to do today is just begin where we left off last time and I'd like to read for you the final verses of this chapter. And it begins by telling us this. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mothers and his brothers stood outside, waiting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mothers and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here is my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now folks, if you've been following along as we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, you know that we have recently come to this chapter 12. And I slowed down a bit here and covered a little bit more detail and gave a sort of an overview of what's happening at this point in this Gospel a few days ago. The one word that marks out this chapter is the word opposition because it describes for us the beginnings of the opposition that Jesus first received from the religious leaders of his day and now ends up even coming from within his own family. Verses 46 and 47 describe this opposition that appears from the family and then verses 48 to 50 describes how he used that situation as an opportunity to teach his disciples about it. He took his opposition that he was facing and he used it as an opportunity to teach a powerful lesson. So let's begin just to look at the type of opposition he was facing. It first said this, while he was talking to the crowd. 
Now we need to pay attention closely here. It says, while he was talking to his crowd, his mother and his brothers stood outside seeking to speak to him. Now his mother here is, of course, Mary. And then it now mentions his brothers. Now you wouldn't think that that text, straightforward as it is, would be a problem for some. But it is, because there are people out there who believe in something called the perpetual virginity of Mary who say that she remained a virgin after Jesus was born. And when they come to this passage, they have a bit of a problem with it because it says Jesus had brothers, meaning that after he was born, Joseph and Mary must have had other children. Now, Bible experts have studied this text closely and say that you cannot make this word brother mean anything else other than brother. So this is apparently, clearly, a reference to, I suppose technically, what would be his half-brothers, those who were born to Joseph and Mary after Jesus was born to Mary, the Virgin Mary at that time, by the power of the Holy Spirit. At any rate, it just says that the family come to speak to him. And one of his followers comes to him and says, your brother, brothers and mother are standing outside and they're asking to speak to you. They want to talk to you. Now, if you look at this, it doesn't seem to be anything particularly unusual going on other than that they wanted to talk to him. However, there's more going on here that meets the eye. And we know this from some other passages in the other gospel accounts that give us a lot more information. For example, in John's gospel, chapter seven, it tells us that his brothers did not believe in him. And they didn't do that until after the resurrection when they came around to the point of view that the brothers finally bought into the fact that Jesus was in fact the Christ, the Messiah. There's another parallel to this passage in Mark's account of it in chapter 3 when he says, Then Jesus entered a house and a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. It actually says in some translations, they went to lay hands on him, in other words, grab him and drag him home. So we need to think about this for a moment. Jesus is walking around, he's working miracles, he's saying himself, I am the Messiah, and he's talking and teaching with great authority. And the crowds generally are awestruck at what he says, yet his own family are trying to grab hold of him and take him home because, as it tells us in Mark, they think he's out of his mind. I'm sure that's the experience of some of you out there listening to this tonight. I went to a meeting last night in which a number of Christians who'd come from particularly challenging backgrounds and family situations talked about how their families had totally rejected them since they came to know the Lord. But here all Matthew tells us is that it says they want to speak to him. But we are given this detail in other passages that they wanted to come and take him home. Some people today have the call of God upon their lives and their fans and family genuinely think they've gone crazy. All they want to do is join a Bible teaching church and they'll make accusations against that and things can even get a whole lot worse for some people. Some people can even get disowned by their families and I've known some who have actually been disinherited by their families. So if anything like that ever happens to you, if it ever does, I just want to offer this passage as a simple word of comfort in that Jesus understands it because it's what happened to him also. This is part of what this passage is about. So thereby Jesus understands what it's like to have your family opposed to you. 
But the book of Hebrews reminds us not only can he sympathize with us in this area, that he can sympathize with all our weaknesses, because it tells us that in all points he was tempted and yet remained without sin. Jesus Christ was tempted and challenged with every conceivable kind of temptation and opposition. He experienced every hurt and pain that we might possibly experience in our lives. But of course, what was special was him. He remained without sin. So I believe this tells us he understands anything we might be going through because he went through it always. In fact, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 tells us, He's been there so he can sympathize with you. So therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace and help in our time of need. Remember, because he has gone through the same things that we go through, he really understands, he sympathizes, he emphasizes which means that we can go to him. We can go to him for wisdom and how to deal with these situations. We can go to him for mercy and we can even go to him for the grace to be able to go through these very difficult experiences, even opposition, unjust opposition from within your own family. But notice here in Matthew's account, when Jesus faces this thing, we see him take it as an opportunity to teach his followers a spiritual lesson. So let's look at the second part of the passage more closely. Reading again, I'll just pick up at verse 48 this time. Who is my mother, Jesus said, and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, sister, and mother. You see, he uses the opportunity to teach a spiritual truth. Actually, you could say, In spite of the opposition from his family, he's using the human family as a measure of what a good relationship should actually be like. And that is the point of his response to the question. He answers by saying, here are my mother and brothers. And he's not pointing to his biological mother or his half-brother. The text says he points his hands out towards his disciples and his followers and says, these are my real family. So what's going on here is that Jesus is trying to tell us that a relationship with Jesus Christ and with other Christians is not based on our physical heritage. It's not based on our family tree and that message would have been particularly relevant and really landed in the hearts and minds of people in Christ's days because many people, particularly the Pharisees, felt their whole position before God came from the fact that they were physical descendants of Abraham. They were going to, in fact, get to heaven solely based on the fact that they were the children, in a sense, of Abraham. And what Jesus is saying here is quite radical, because he's saying, you can be my brother or my sister, but it's not based on a physical relationship or your family heritage. It's a spiritual thing. The same point is absolutely made by the Apostle John in the first chapter of his gospel, I'm sure you've heard the verse from that famous opening of that gospel where it says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the children of God, even to them that believed on his name. And we know, well, the answer to the question is, how do you become a child of God? The answer is by faith. Now, we sometimes ignore the next verse because it says, those who were born, not of blood, nor of the will, or the flesh, nor of the will of man, 
but of God. It really unpacks this for us very clearly there. Writing elsewhere, John also said, but as many as received him, he gave the power to become the sons of God, not of blood, meaning the bloodline was not the basis upon which we become children of God. So Jesus is saying to these disciples here, you guys are my spiritual brothers and sisters. And he then adds that anyone who does the will of my father in heaven is in fact my brother, sister, mother. Now that almost sounds like you've got to do the will of God in order to be a child of God. And there is of course a sense in which that's true. If you understand the will of God, you do become a child of God. But when you ask, what is the will of God? The will of God for us is to trust Jesus Christ and thereby be saved and gain heaven. I've just quoted that verse that from 1 John 12, which said, but as many received him, then he gave them the authority to become a child of God. And then he explains that that inheritance, that sonship, that childhood is granted to everyone that believes in his name. It's even clearer a few chapters later in John's account when in chapter 6 he tells us and this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of all of those he has given me but raise them up in the last day. For my father's will, here it is, is, is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life and that they shall be raised up on the last days. In other words, ultimately, the will of God is that you first accept his son, and that is what makes your brother, sister, a child, a co-heir with Christ, with everyone else who's done that. That makes you someone who has not only an intimate relationship with God, but an intimate relationship with other believers, and that that criteria is spiritual, and it begins with faith. But that is only the beginning of this relationship, because it actually is all about faith, hope and love. In John chapter 13, Jesus is heard to say, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. The nearest and dearest relationships in life by nature now will have to have a spiritual aspect to them. It is those who are living in the will of God, those who have made the decision to trust Jesus Christ and are doing their best to follow the will of God by loving one another, those are the ones with whom we can have the most intimate and supportive relationships. I'm going to say it's real simple, folks. Christianity, real Christianity, comes down to these three words. Ready? Faith, love and hope. But Jesus himself tells us the greatest of these is love. I wonder why he says that. Well, you see, faith, that takes care of the past. I can look back and by faith see that Jesus Christ died for my sins, arose from the dead, and trust him as my saviour. And all my sins are taken away. And that means I'm living a life of faith. And that Christian life is a walk of faith for your entire life henceforth forward. If we live by faith and we walk by faith, then we are doing that in the present. And by living in faith in the present, well, there's a word for that process. And that is what theologians refer to as living in the hope of God. But that hope is a sure and certain hope because faith has taken care of our past and hope is alongside us in the present. But now talking about things that we do in the future, 
That is about living in love, which means loving one another, loving other ones who have made that same decision. And that is the greatest gift, not only that God gives us, but by living it out, the greatest gift that we give other people. Now, I don't have time today to read for you all of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that great chapter about love. But it says you can have all the possessions in the world and yet not have love. If you don't have love, you have nothing, it tells us. Someone actually does come to Jesus and say, what is the greatest commandment? And he says to love God and love one another. And then he's also quoted as saying, a new commandment I give you, that this one thing is that you love one another. So love, it appears, is the greatest of the gifts of God. And the reason love is the greatest is that when we get to heaven, love will still persist. Love is eternal. When we get to heaven, we don't actually need that type of faith anymore because our eyes will see the salvation of the Lord. And we don't need to hope because we have received what we have promised, eternity in the presence of God as himself. But the greatest of these is love because love will persist throughout eternity and we're still going to be able to love one another. You see, what Jesus did here in responding the way he did against this attempt by the family to take him home and take him out of this situation and deny his messiahship was not to say anything against the family as some people on a superficial level mistakenly believe. He used it as an opportunity to teach that the closest relationship we can ever experience in our life is within those who love the Lord and try to do the will of God in their lives. And that means that we become, like a family, the high point of loving experience within the human condition. The most important, intimate, satisfying, significant relationships with life are indeed spiritual as well as relational. They are with him. And when you find and can combine those two things within a family or a married relationship, you have, I believe, the opportunity to have the highest possible experience of living in the love of God. And what I would say, friends, to those of you who are not experiencing that within your own family now, perhaps because your spouse or your children have not found the love of God in their lives, you're not called to leave them behind because that would be the very rejection of our faith and the hope that they too are called to receive. We are called to hope and pray for them, to strive to love them unconditionally like God loved us before we even knew or cared about him. We are called to hope that for that one day they too might experience the fullness of this life and love by seeing our loved ones come to the Lord also. Church is meant to be a family. Unfortunately, many churches are nothing more than a collection of individuals these days and people don't behave as if they're really related to each other. Too often, churches can be just a collection of individual people who share similar traditions or preferences or styles. We all have to decide, do we want to be part of a collection of individuals or do we want to be absolutely sure that we're going to be a family who care for one another, who love and support one another? As a church family, we need to be in the business of learning to work together, fellowship together, break bread together, pray together, support one another, love one another. The church is indeed a family, 
But sadly, for so many people today who've grown up in dysfunctional families, we don't really have a proper handle on how to function as a church. So in many ways, the church is becoming dysfunctional because the lives of the people within the church are more and more dysfunctional. Now, I'm not judging people or churches. It's just the reality of living in a fallen world in the 21st century. When we try our best to base how we do church families, there is bound to be an effect of the model that we see in society of family and how broken it is. It's bound to have a carryover into our church and church family life. But if we want to have a functional family and a functional church family, I believe the best way is revealed here by Jesus Christ in the New Testament. So we ought to do what God says we're supposed to do, which means we care for each other, we love one another. Interestingly, I once spoke to an ex-services, a military guy who said that church for him had never given him the experience of family that he found within the military unit within which he served, particularly in wartime. He said, you know what? Even though I go to church, I still really miss the deep fellowship I find with all the other guys in my unit. I remember how we used to sit around and be real with one another. He said, I can't find anything like that for Christians, particularly Christian men. I no longer have a place to admit my faults, he said, or talk about my battles and do it in a way where someone won't just come and preach at me or frown at me or even judge me. I miss a place where I'm accepted and I feel as inclusive and where, well, for him, he said, what's really struck me, he said, where people were unshockable. He said, you could tell my comrades anything, my secrets, and usually they didn't tell others. I wonder how often that's the case in church. Christ wants his church to be supportive and unshockable as a fellowship when people open up and say to you, you know what, I've messed up big time or I've come to the end of my tether. I'm beaten by this. Alcoholics Anonymous, I feel, often has this quality and maybe it's because its roots lie in the church of a previous age. So we, I believe, as family communities, church family communities, really need to ask ourselves some tough questions and try and be part of the solution. Just think for a moment, what would happen in your church if a woman discovered her husband was a practicing homosexual and it was shared within the church fellowship? Where would she actually even go to find help and support? How would we react when someone tells us their daughter is pregnant or a child has run away from home for the third time? How do people react when someone tells them they've lost their job? Or more difficult, when they've lost their job and they know it was their fault, they've lost their job because they messed up and made an error. Or what about when a wife or a husband is an alcoholic? Or what about when something horrible comes back from the biopsy result? Who do we speak to? Who do we turn to? Who do we speak to when we've told we've got a cancer diagnosis and the prognosis isn't good? Or what happens when someone has a breakdown or suffers from a serious mental health condition? Sometimes the church helps, sometimes the church has family, but sometimes, sadly, the church can often be the most severe condemning, judgmental group of people. You know what? We're just meant to be family and we're meant to do everything in the name of Christ. And everything we do, good or bad, in reality is done in the name of Christ because we are the church. Sometimes we don't even know we're doing the bad stuff. 
but I don't want any of us to be part of the bad stuff. I want us to learn from this teachable moment what Christ said about us being a family. We should all be family, both within this community and with across the local church families that we exist within. Loving and supporting each other with all the good stuff I've talked about, the the stuff of faith, hope, and most importantly, love. Because that's what families do, and that's what the family of God should do. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for joining me. Now, if you're here for the very first time, then why not click on that subscribe button wherever you're getting your podcasts from. And you too can join us on this journey through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. By clicking subscribe, it means you'll never miss another single episode. Always free, always freely available, always copyright free in the public domain. You'll also find links there, hopefully within where you're getting your podcast from, to places where you can connect with the ministry and receive more teaching resources. If you're not seeing those active links from wherever you happen to be getting your podcast from, just find your way through to the podcast hosting website, which is thebibleproject.brosprout.com, where of course all those active links will be available. And why not make the decision to make a study of the Word of God part of the rhythm of your daily life also from henceforward. But with that all said, I'll say bye-bye for now, and I do trust I'll see you back here tomorrow again on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.